Will you please turn with me in your Bibles to the third chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, where this morning we are going to be looking together at verses 7 through 19. Mark chapter 3, beginning with verse 7, and I will read through verse 19. You can find that passage on page 982 in your pew Bibles. Over the last several weeks, we have been focusing on a section of Mark's gospel account that has found Jesus Christ involved in what we would call a growing conflict between himself and the religious leaders of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees. And I've pointed out to you now several times the importance that Mark places upon our properly understanding this conflict. I want you to understand he is still very much about his mission of showing us Jesus Christ and his life-giving, glorious gospel. He is not left off from that here. He's showing us from these five conflicts exactly what Jesus would not tolerate. He will not stand for hypocrisy when it comes to faith. In all these individual cases, that is exactly what is going on. And Mark highlights it for us through these contrasts that really are at the very heart of every one of these conflicts. I've mentioned them before. In the case of the paralytic who was lowered down through a hole that they had ripped in the roof into the presence of Jesus, the Pharisees were offended that Jesus had the audacity to forgiveness, to pronounce forgiveness over the man's sin. You remember the reply of the Pharisees, who can forgive sin but God himself? The contrast is there. Jesus is doing exactly what only God could be expected to do. And these men reject the very thing that they themselves thought they were looking for. He continued with the second example, as Jesus calls not a list of who's who among current Jewish theologians to be his disciples, but clearly he calls broken and fallen men. Men like Levi, the tax collector. Once again, the religious leaders are offended. This man, how dare he? He eats and drinks and celebrates with men that we know are sinners, known sinners. And again, Jesus coming to complete his mission is doing exactly what they should have been expecting him to do. And again, they missed it. Instead of following the vain traditions of their own foolish idolatry. And so we see faith contrasted with man-made religion which claimed to be the real thing. It was there before us again as the scribes and the Pharisees vocalized their displeasure that the disciples of Jesus were not fasting and making it known to everyone around them. Everyone else was fasting. The disciples of John were fasting. These men in their hypocrisy had taken what God had meant as a tool for humbling ourselves before God, acknowledging our own desperate need of 
need for him, and they had turned it into yet another tool to feed pride within themselves and let other, others know how great their spirituality was. It's a contrast. Hypocrisy and true religious intent separated from the pursuit of the glory of man and then calling that true religion. The last time we looked together at this just a couple of weeks ago, we saw the fourth and the fifth and final conflict. First, there was an accusation made against the disciples of Jesus for very blatantly breaking the Sabbath. We witnessed the manifest and growing desire on the part of the Pharisees to discredit Jesus. Things had ramped up a bit. They had taken it up a notch. They were no longer finding occasion as they just happened to come upon Jesus and his disciples. They were now following him around. They were intent on seeing him put away or even killed. And they watch as Jesus' disciples walking through a field, being weary and hungry, began to pluck the heads of grain in order to eat. Now the Pharisees had them. Here they were on the Sabbath day, clearly harvesting. And everyone knows you cannot harvest on the Sabbath. I wonder if their own reasoning worked on them for following people around on the Sabbath in order to catch them breaking the law. Apparently not. And Jesus points them upon hearing their accusation to their own ignorance of the Scriptures. He points them to what King David and his men did and why it mattered. And the contrast becomes even clearer. Then, just to punctuate the point, Mark gives us that fifth and final conflict. And you'll remember, it's still centered on the Sabbath. Jesus heals a man who had suffered a withered hand. But before he does, Jesus himself goes after the religious leaders by posing a question to them. And he says, tell me, is it better to do good or evil, to save a life or to kill on the Sabbath? And seeing that none would acknowledge the question, Jesus was grieved over the hardness of their hearts. And he answered his own question by healing the man's hand and restoring it perfectly. Remember, Jesus said that man, the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Pharisees' outrage then reached new heights and they began plotting the murder of Jesus, becoming the very opposite of Jesus' own answer to to the question. And beloved, I hope that you've had made clear to you exactly why The hypocrisy that Jesus went after with so much vehemence during his earthly ministry was so heinous. It was, in essence, living entirely for self and calling that living, living for Almighty God. You understand, it was play-acting biblical faith, the only hope and comfort in life and in death. It was, in essence, death dressed up like life. 
It was the antithesis of the long-awaited promise of God come to fruition in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus would not stand for it. He came to save the broken ones, the sinners. And Mark wants for us to see that here. So, beloved, I ask you, do you see it? It's funny, the very sins that I think that we so often are fearful will separate us from grace are the very ones he came to forgive. But living as if you in and of yourself are good enough? Living as if all these around you do not deserve to find forgiveness in the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Living as if the Christian life were all about your own glory? Well, Jesus had very little patience for that. And Mark is pointing it out to you as essential to seeing the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Beloved, the kingdom of God is not built upon the wisdom of men. False religion is. Hypocrisy is. God's ways are not man's ways. And as Mark begins to transition here in this text before us, he once again gives to us yet another great contrast to lead us into even deeper thoughts about these critical things in the life of the fallen, in the life of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, beloved, it's with all that in mind that I would invite you to follow along with me in your Bibles this morning as I read again Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Hear now the word of our Lord. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him. And from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan. And those from Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude when they heard how many things he was doing came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, they fell down before him crying and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we are again grateful for the light of your word this morning. We pray that you would quiet our spirits. We pray, Father, that you would clear out our minds and our hearts from the many things that distract us this morning and that we would give our full and undivided attention to the glorious truth of your word and that hearing your word this morning through the power of your spirit, that we would be transformed by it for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think that all too often this is one of those passages that would be just very easy to skim over and to miss the significance of what Mark is communicating to us here. I want to tell you, even as I looked at all the commentaries that I regularly reference when preparing to write a sermon, I noticed that even there, and some of those scholastic and expositional works, there was some of that, just glossing over these early verses. It appears almost as if Mark is making a rather stretched out transition here out of these five hypocrisy conflicts with the religious leaders into the heart of the teaching ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ by sort of just abruptly stating that Jesus called the rest of the disciples beginning with verse 13 and running through verse 19. So the tendency of many is to skip right past verses 7 through 12 and get to the 12 disciples, the apostles. But I think we would miss something extremely valuable here if we make that mistake. I think Mark wants for you to consider another contrast here in light of of the contrast that he has been laboring to show us in those five conflicts. And it is the contrast between a kingdom of hypocrisy and the kingdom of Almighty God. And it is and indeed should be a very sobering thing For us to consider. And I think that it carries all the way through the calling of the twelve. So first I want us to see the contrast here between the setting from verse 1. And the setting here in verse 7 in our text this morning. In verse 1 you'll remember where is Jesus as he graciously heals and restores this man with the withered hand. He's in the synagogue. And in the synagogue, the place where the true followers, the true worshipers of Almighty God are supposed to be called to gather, what does Jesus meet with? In this case, he meets with the enemies of God who are masquerading as the true followers of God and he's met not simply with resistance, but with hatred, with accusation, with scandal. However, outside of that place of worship, what is he met with? Literally, mobs of people running, pushing, scratching and clawing, if you will, to get near enough to touch him for healing. Crowds so big and so 
fiercely pushing in on him that Jesus himself begins to look out for his own safety and he instructs the disciples to make ready a boat on the shore of the sea so that he would be able to retreat out into the water should the crowd so press in upon him that he would be crushed. And I want us to think about it. People outside of the synagogue were pressing in to get close enough to him to touch him in hopes of being healed and being restored. While the people inside were plotting his murder. They were looking for a way to neutralize this very clear threat to their own rule and to their own way of life. They were willing to fight to the death over protecting their own traditions. Outside, outside they knew that death was already imminent should they fail to touch him. Beloved, do you see that contrast here and why it matters this morning? Do you understand why it is that I would say that it is a sobering thing to think on, to meditate upon. Mark wants you to see it because he wants you to get to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see it? I fear that all too often this kind of thing creeps into the church from at least a supposed good intention. We must protect our ways. We must protect our traditions. Beloved, listen to me. If those traditions are not flowing graciously from the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ, then the only thing that you are doing is protecting self by standing up as a deterrent to the gospel. We must protect the gospel. and We do not ever do that by hoarding it. We do not ever do that by going out back here and burying it in the ground so we keep the riffraff out. I want to be clear, Jesus came to redeem the riffraff. He came to redeem not the clean and pretty people who already had it all together. He came for the broken ones. The ones who knew full well that they had been undone by the fall. The ones who have no hope outside of life in Jesus Christ. And if we have life in Jesus Christ, we should never be found to be hoarding that life. Do you understand? We should never be found to be hiding out inside when the brokenness is everywhere on the outside. The outside where sinners are desperately trying to get to Jesus. No, we are not part of a kingdom in hiding. We must take this treasure of the gospel out there and trust God to call his people through it. So I want you to understand from the outset this morning, this is what King Jesus and his indomitable kingdom looks like. Mark wants us to see it. Do you see it this morning? We want to be clear here. The Pharisees were not protecting the sanctity and the holiness of God with all of their rules and restrictions. 
They were not interested in the law of God as a tutor to lead them to the long-awaited, much-anticipated Messiah. They were not looking for life and healing and reconciliation and redemption. They were protecting their power. They were protecting all that had been afforded to them as the puny little sovereigns over their own pathetic kingdom. These men bowed at the altar of themselves. They were idolaters of the worst kind. They were their own gods masquerading as worship worshipers of the one true God. In the house of God. Meanwhile, outside, on the seashore, the brokenness of the four corners of the earth was closing in on its only hope. You see why, why, you see that it's why Mark uses these regions that he mentions here? He's saying, in effect, that the broken ones were flocking to Jesus from the north and from the south and from the east and from the west. And Mark takes it up another notch from there. Not only are the broken ones becoming aware of who and what this is and running to him. Look at what he says in verse 11. It's shocking. The agents of evil are there. And they bowed in his presence. The unclean spirit, says Mark, whenever they saw him, did what? They fell down and they cried out saying, you are the son of God. The agents of evil, the demons, the unclean spirits fell on their faces in fear before Jesus Christ, acknowledging exactly who he was. They had certainly not bought in to the glorious kingdom of men. They had not been swayed by an illusion of evil power thought to rival the power of Almighty God. They knew. And they were rightly terrified. Do you see? They knew the score. They had no power to match the power of the Son of God. And please understand, what's going on here, it's not a saving confession. It's a true confession to be sure. It is, however, the confession of a knowingly defeated foe. This is a confession that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the King of Kings, that He alone holds the power, and they know they are no match for Him. Do you see it, beloved? Again, it forces us to just sort of pause, or at least it should, and to think through, to meditate upon this contrast here. Because I think if we do, we don't spend so much time seeing as this, this gray area somewhere between these two kingdoms. Do you see the importance of not flying right past, right past these first few verses? Think of it so far. First, we see there is a world of difference between a kingdom that looks like it possesses a worldly power and a kingdom that is the power of God itself. There is no adequate measure between those two kingdoms. 
We see the difference of a kingdom that is established and protected by petty, evil little men. And a kingdom that is established and built and protected by the king of kings himself. We see the difference between a kingdom built upon the ridiculous ground of hypocrisy. And a kingdom built upon the foundation of truth itself, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no comparison. There is no gray area. And beloved, we are forced to ask what kind of, a, what kind of kingdom are we desirous to be a part of? One that looks good to men and perhaps suits our own fancies? Or one that is the power of Almighty God itself? I want to tell you, it's only a difficult choice for the fool. The hard-hearted, the one who is clinging to his or her right to have it their own way. God's way is the only way that leads to life. Any other way is simply simply death dressed up as life. And it's worthless. It profits nothing. Beloved, we need to see it. Do you see it? There's one final thing that I think we need to see here in order to understand the true flow of this gospel account. I've said many times that Mark wants to show us Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that he never departs from that mission. And he has shown us that exalted walls of hypocrisy will not be enough to stop Jesus and his mission. Jesus will indeed triumph. And I think that it's Probably why Mark gives to us this narrative in the way that he does here. Think about what he's shown us. The Pharisees and the scribes recognize the power of Jesus. They see the signs. They acknowledge the truth about him. And the effect is it leads them to a rallying point with their own sworn enemies, the Herodians, to begin to plot the grisly death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the effect of the truth upon the hearts of these men. They they feel as if they must. He's too much of a threat to their power. He threatens to expose them. He threatens to take away what they and their fathers had worked so hard to build up and protect. Their Their hypocritical kingdom of self. And so Jesus must go away at any cost. So they scheme and they plan and they plot. And Mark lets the reader know that the spiritual agents of evil, the demons, the unclean spirits, they see it too. You notice how Jesus responds to them. He tells them in no uncertain terms to put a lid on it, to stop speaking. To be silent because it's not yet time. He has work to do. He has a mission to fulfill. Right? And then amid all this chaos and all this anger and all this demons falling on their faces, Jesus, we are told, departs to a mountainside and he names his 12 apostles. 
his 12 disciples. And once again, we see that these disciples are a bit of a motley crew. These are not the people that a good pastoral committee would select. These are not the types of men that any real businessman today would look towards in order to build an international corporation or even a ministry. But there is Jesus amid all the chaos, quietly slipping away, and he's doing what? He's building his church amid it all. Mark wants you to understand, this is King Jesus. This is God in the flesh. The King of kings. And in the midst of all the chaos, and all the planning, and all the scheming, and all the crowds, Jesus quietly slips away. And he builds an indomitable kingdom. And it's, it's interesting to me that Mark uses the number 12. The number 12 is significant. You see how he separates it? He points out, he calls the 12. Mark wants us to see the tie to Israel and the 12 tribes in the Old Testament. I said in the very beginning of this series, when we talked about Mark looking back to the beginning of Genesis, Mark knows his Bible. And he points you back to help you understand. Allow me to say this as plainly as I know how. The Pharisees and the demons themselves both would have loved to step in and thwart the plan of Almighty God. And they tried. Thus, the chaos, the chaotic scene that we see here that we've been looking at for weeks. They would have loved to stop Jesus from doing what he came to do. They would have loved it. It was their mission. They would have loved to at least got in the way of his success. Mark wants you to think about it. He wants you to think about it. He wants you to look back to think about how often Anyone or anything has managed to utterly disrupt the mission of God with the redemption of his people. Of course, we know that these Pharisees, these demons, they're not the first to try. Workers of iniquity have always sought as much. They were there in the garden. When the cunning serpent tempted our mother Eve, ultimately our father Adam, but God pointed his sinful broken people amid his pronunciation of the curse itself to the wonderful promise of the gospel, stating that the seed of the woman would prevail over the seed of the serpent. You understand, they were there as Cain rose up and murdered his brother Abel. And it looked as if the righteous line of the people of God would be extinguished in the very beginning. And God brought Seth. And his people continued to move forward. It was there in the flood when the wickedness of the people of the earth was so great that God chose to wipe it all out with a flood. Yet inexplicably, he created an ark. 
a vessel of salvation for Noah and his family. And his promise continued to move forward in redemptive history. His promise is echoing back throughout all recorded history. Have you ever thought about it? Beloved, listen to me. The entirety of scripture speaks of it. I was reading the book of Genesis this week in my, just my regular Bible reading. And you see it so clearly in Joseph and his brothers at the end of the book of Genesis. They sell him into slavery in an act of despicable jealousy. And God uses that very thing to prepare provision and the salvation of his people by the hand of Joseph, who though was sold into slavery, we know becomes second only to Pharaoh in Egypt and empowered to save the starving Israelites, the people of God. What the brothers meant for evil, God purposed for good. It was there as the Israelites were delivered from the hand of the Egyptians. It was there in the wilderness when it looked as if God would certainly be justified in ending his grumbling and wicked people. And they continued. It was there in Leviticus as the law prepared the hearts of the people to receive the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that he alone would bring. We see it in the tabernacle. We see it in the law. We see it in the ceremonies. We see it in the tent of meeting and its implements. We see it in the temple. We see it in the kings. God preserving his people, preserving a remnant, moving his promise forward. We see it in the prophets. We see it as Herod terrified of losing his own power, seeks to kill all the baby boys of the Hebrews in order to thwart the birth of the Messiah King. God's kingdom marches on. We see it at the cross, the crucifixion, where Jesus, with his dying breath, declares that it is finished. And he breathes his last and fulfills scripture in being the sacrifice to end all sacrifice. We see it in the resurrection and the visible defeat of sin, death, and the devil. We see it, beloved, as a struggling infant church is built upon the backs of flawed men like the disciples. We see it in the epistles as the apostles, empowered by the Holy Spirit, bring the church back to Jesus Christ again and again and again, throwing down all of the errors, all of the foolish thought, all of the vain thinking that would dare to rise up and challenge the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's there in the revelation of John as the lamb who was slain, climbs and ascends to his throne and rules for eternity. And beloved, you hear it. And you wonder, why, Mark? Why here? Why bring it up here? It's because we are not hypocrites. We have not believed our own lies. 
We have not protected our own right to be sovereign. We are not here this morning to promote anything but Jesus Christ and the glory of his gospel and the majesty of his kingdom. Do you understand? We are here because it is true. And God in his mercy and grace has given us the means to embrace it through his gift of faith. And the truth is, beloved, knowing what we know, knowing the truth, what could we possibly have to fear? You understand that the message of Scripture is that God will move heaven and earth for your salvation. Do you believe that? I'm speaking to you, if you are here this morning and you are anxious and fearful and afraid for the future and discouraged, I want you to hear Mark this morning. He says, come. Come and see the truth. Come and see the king and his indomitable kingdom, a kingdom that cannot and that will not ever be shaken. A king in a kingdom that cannot and that will not ever fail. A king that is so sovereign that even the agents of evil are bent to serve his will. This is not just another kingdom. And the Lord Jesus Christ is certainly not just another king. This life that has you down and defeated and scared and unable to breathe this morning. It's his to command and to move and to accomplish everything you could possibly ever need. And he loves you enough to do it. He is God. And he is a God of providence. And he's using even your own troubles your own fears to draw you closer to his glorious rest. And so, beloved, the question is, will you come? Will you come and see? Will you come and cast it all upon him in rest and glory in the truth? Forget the world. Forget the lesser kingdoms. Forget your feelings and the obvious pitfalls and the apparent defeats. And look for a moment at the record of this king and his kingdom. Because he's never lost. Nothing has ever stood in his way. And nothing will. Will you run to him this morning and find your only comfort in life and in death? Beloved, I pray that we all will. And I pray that this wonderful knowledge would fuel our worship as we sing a closing hymn this morning. Amen. Let's pray.